JR here. Wanted to let you know that during the editing process, I discovered that the settings on my microphone had been changed. Um, wasn't by me. Could have been a kid. Could have been a dog. Could have been a ghost. I don't know. As a result, it sounds like I'm not talking into the microphone at all. My apologies for that now and hope you can bear with us through this episode. What Molly has to say, as always, is fantastic. We all know I'm generally unneeded during the show. So that said, I apologize. Here's the show. too busy to flush i'm jr and i'm molly and if this is your first time joining us thank you so much for being here and spending you know we hope you spend 45 minutes or so with us we're we try to be likable um although molly and i were just discussing how prickly we can be sometimes and difficult we don't think we're prickly but we think other people interpret us as prickly i think i'm very prickly is anybody else out there in our podcast listener prickly if you're prickly raise your hand Okay, everybody's raising their hand. Awesome. Okay. Um, anyway, we are, if, if this is your first time joining us, we are a happily married couple of almost 14 years. We have three kids. We Eight have is, four kids. And we have four kids, ages 11 through turd, boy, girl, girl, girl. And... I was counting on my fingers to make sure he got all the girls in there. <laughs> There's a lot of girls. <laughs> a lot of girls. And we live in Montana. And we are having a very busy summer. My buddy Chris, our listener Chris from Utah, just emailed me asking for the goat cheese whipped cream or texted me. He uh-huh. was mentioning how busy their summer is as well. It's kind of crazy. Because they have two boys who are mm-hmm. middle schoolish yeah. age. And like anybody who lives in the mountain states, the Rocky Mountain states, I think we do a lot more in the summer that we add to our normal lives. We don't necessarily take anything away. So winter season, you, you know, you're not outside. You're probably not camping. You're probably not taking care of your yard. You're probably not gardening. You're probably not floating the river. You're probably not mountain Golfing, biking. mountain Golfing, biking. Golfing, so all the things. So, you know, you have a little bit more. As So I, I didn't tell you this, but I've had a couple of email exchanges with our former pastor's wife who moved to California Mm -hmm. and she said she feels this longing for Montana summers right now there by the way you'll appreciate this their their date night activity now is finding a new beach to wander and then finding a taco truck at that beach that's which seems like a fantastic hobby to have but uh, but she was saying how much she misses Montana summers and the the obviously it's of a different degree but the beautifulness that is a Montana summer and all of the joy and fun things that you can pack into a Montana summer are make her feel like the longing for heaven where you're kind of in exile in Southern California, <laughs> longing for a Montana summer. And here we are on earth longing for, longing for glory. And she feels like she knows that the longing for glory a little bit better, having now missed two Montana summers after raising three kids through a Montana and, and we're summer. we're not saying, for those of you that don't live in Montana, we're not saying Montana summers are glorious because... They're it's, mis- been, it's miserably hot right now. It's miserably hot, yeah, exactly. So I've been trying to, when I'm home, when I'm not working, I'm trying to do outside work in the morning when it's cooler out and then saving my inside studio music stuff for uh, afternoons, like today. And I, mean, I spend my afternoons yelling at the kids to close the back door. Yes, and in the morning she spends her kids, here spends her morning yelling at the kids to do the math. Yep, yep, because we homeschool and yes. we are doing math all summer. Um, you will hear, and I, I forgot to mention this, as you can tell, we're already rambling. Um, we don't plan our conversations. Generally, there's one or maybe two core topics or subjects that Molly usually brings up, um, but I don't know what those are, and so the conversations that Molly and I have about them are pretty pretty fresh and unrehearsed and unplanned, and they can range from parenting to marriage to And we like to think breakfast. of you guys sitting in... Sitting along with us, 
welcomed into our lives in an act of mm-hmm. hospitality, virtual hospitality, if there is such this a is thing. This like reality podcasting. I should just yeah, follow us around bit. with and just record things that we do and we can do a whole new yeah. show with just yep. following us around. I will say this, though. I don't intend to talk about any bodily functions today, Anna. So... You can oh, just and whose kids relax whose daughters listen to us now and enjoy really Zoe and Hayden might oh. be listening to us right now. Yes. Hello, Zoe and Hayden. Hi, girls. And See you tonight. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Tonight, I tonight. guess if you were post this In tomorrow. Because we're gonna hang out. Internet time fun. warps. Um I Or yesterday. S- if I post this tomorrow, I've seen them yesterday. But, uh, don't confuse me. But no no intention to talk about poop today. That doesn't mean it's not going to come up because it is a very real part of our lives. But... Oh, man. What conversation about poop just happened on Telegram? It was Anna saying... Oh, squatty. You guys, there was a huge... If you're not part of our Telegram chat group and you want um, an interesting non-threatening, non-stupid social media time with other people. We've got a Telegram group. It's just basically a a giant chat room. Um, And it's all listeners of the show. And frequently, they're all really wonderful people. We don't have any dumb people on our Telegram group. This is true. That's cool. So I I like that. But join it. And A lot of great conversations of people who have been in Asia (laughs) and have enjoyed the... The posture, the correct ergonomic posture for going to the bathroom that Asians typically enjoy, and then the humor of when Asians come to elevated Western toilets. They actually, yeah, they squat on the top of a toilet seat. You know, another interesting thing... Sorry, Anna. Sorry, Anna. We're going there. (laughs) there. If you go to Latin America, the pipes are not built to withstand, of bathrooms, cannot withstand toilet paper flushing. And so there's typically a garbage can next to the toilet in Latin America. I don't know about elsewhere in the Mm -hmm. developing world, but I know Latin America because I've spent a lot of time there. There's always a toilet, a garbage can next to the toilet, and you throw your toilet paper there. And then they come to American toilets, and so border... Uh, airports have uh, often, at least back in the back in the nineties, when I was doing a lot more in early two thousands, when I was doing more air travel between Latin America and the U.S., there were certain airports where people with less money who were coming to the United States would fly in, and they would use the bathroom in LA, for example, or Houston when they landed, and they would not see a garbage can next to the toilet. And so they would throw their used toilet paper on the floor next to the toilet, because that was the etiquette if there was no garbage can to put your toilet paper in, which is gross. (laughs) That's all I've got there. It was just... closer, which As a teenager... Yeah, it was. I mean, as a teenager (laughs) flying in and out of Los Angeles, which was a bit of a scary airport anyway, Uh, because it was under construction for all of the 1990s, and people there would literally, coming back from Guatemala City, there's a restaurant chain in Guatemala called Pollo Campero. Which is kind of like KFC, but pollo is chicken and campero is farmer. So it was farmer chicken. And it was people in Guatemala craved it similarly to the way people in parts of the United States don't who don't have Chick-fil-A but love Chick-fil-A crave it and will get it. We had a friend once who had Chick-fil-A flown into Billings for her husband's birthday dinner because that's just all he wanted. And... So, and then they had to reheat it, and Chick-fil-A gave them special reheating instructions, because apparently this isn't unusual. So, Guatemalans would get on the airplane with boxes of relatively fresh pollo campero, and they would take this, I don't even remember, four or five hour flight, it wasn't miserably long, but it was a long flight, from Guatemala City to Los Angeles, and they would go through customs with their box of chicken... And fried chicken and get off of the plane and 
go through security and hand the pollo campero to their friends and family who've been craving it while they're working in the United States and don't have pollo campero available to them. Uh, that Those flights were very similar to being on the chicken buses, <laughs> minus the live chickens. But literally stuff shoved into overheads and women sitting for these long flights with big bags of things on their laps. And I think the flight attendants just had just given up ages ago because they never fought it. Uh, it was it was really interesting. Really interesting. Great. That's funny. We I did a um, <clears throat> a uh, uh, flight from Bangladesh. No. Yes. I did one of my really long Asian flights, and I almost upgraded because it was a longer flight. It was mm-hmm. like a four- or five-hour flight. Um, but I didn't really feel like, I, oh, it's not worth spending the money. And I end up spending... I end up not upgrading, and... I was on this flight with you, where these young workers who were flying... Yeah. ...didn't even know how to work the seatbelts. Yeah. And they kept sitting next to us. Because they kept using the bathroom. Yeah. And they just come sit right next to you and wait for the bathroom. And you're like, uh, hi. Uh, yeah. And because uh, I remember looking in the in the premiere and they're like, the whole section was empty. And I was like, why didn't I sit there? Yeah. it was. It's really interesting to fly with people who've never, never flown before. Do you remember a friend who was adopted as a late elementary kid from Romania? His parents, who go to our church, flew over to Romania to get him. Mm -hmm. He's engaged now, by the way. Yeah, uh, you told me that. Okay, so anyway, he... I took my motorcycle... He remembers flying... He lived... He was one of those classic, lived in a Romanian orphanage, minimal human touch, emotional involvement, and things like that, until he was literally mid-elementary school, and then he was adopted by an American couple... And he'd never seen a light switch before until the hotel room the night before they flew home with him. And then, so he just kept flipping switches because they seemed so magical to him. And he remembers just having his mind completely blown by being on the airplane. And just imagine going from an orphanage with no electricity to being in the air. <laughs> it's totally wild, but it's it's pretty wild to think that somebody who's just a couple years younger than we are lived in those sorts of conditions and that's still normal in a lot of the world yes um and i can say from experience that western toilets are lovely molly once did the uh did the bangladeshi thing we were out on a trip and she comes out of the out of the village Hold on, hold on. Here's so it, there's actually a funnier story to it than just that, because we were visiting a Christian church that was the only uh, non-secret Christian church in in it, as far as people could walk. And this was a region where people basically only walked and had bicycles. They didn't have a lot of cars, and they walked on the dams between. Uh, tilapia ponds and rice paddies and so we we take a van with our Bangladeshi host and we are and another interpreter and we had to walk a couple hundred yards on these dams between tilapia ponds and rice paddies and we get to the cluster of homes where the church is meeting and we participate in a worship service and this is, I actually had a plan for talking today and this is not where we intended, I intended for it to go at all, but it's really, it's really cool. You guys, one of the very cool distinctives of the Reformation, going to get into a little bit of church history here, is remember reformers found it valuable for people to know what they were saying and hearing when they were worshiping. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, the mass and the Bible were only in Latin. And we have people like Wycliffe and others whose names escape me right now, literally being killed for translating the scriptures into the vernacular of the people. And of course, um, you know, Luther translated things into German, which was groundbreaking and very important. And he was vilified for it by the Roman Catholic Church. 
And the other interesting thing that the Reformation did is bring music and the importance of music into the vernacular. And this idea that you know, you could sing a new song to the Lord in your own language and that God delighted in you worshiping him in your heart language. So, so that's a very, very fun, cool way that the Reformation brought scripture literally into people's hearts and allowed us to meditate on scripture day and night through song and through scripture memory and Bible reading. The, the uh, Islamic world is very much akin to old Roman Catholicism in the sense that there is one right language to read about God in and to worship God. And that is Arabic, of course. And so you, you actually can't read the Muslim scriptures in English and have it be considered actually reading the Quran. You are supposed to read it in Arabic and you do your prayers in Arabic. And if there is singing and worship, it's in Arabic. And you look, if you look at artwork and architectural design of houses of worship for Muslims throughout the world, the standard, the default is to have an Arabic style of artwork inside and an Arabic aesthetic outside as well. And that's because they don't have this understanding of God as being the creator of all languages and bigger than all languages and wanting you to have a relationship with him in a way that is meaningful for you to understand that relationship, i.e. in your heart language. And so it people, poor people in Bangladesh who are Muslim do worship services in Arabic, have Bibles that they can't read unless they're very educated in Arabic, and hear worship music if there is such a thing in Arabic. And Bangladesh has a very, very rich history of folk music, very rich tradition of folk music. This is like the longest intro ever. It's not an intro. This is this is we're in it now. Okay. And oh, to the yeah, to the to the, to the back Sorry. to the toilet yeah, story. Anyway. Sorry, Anna. I'm gonna blame this on you, Anna. Actually, because we just called you out that we weren't gonna do it. <laughs> And then it's like, don't think about pink elephants, and all you can do is think about pink elephants. Ooh, animal crackers, the pink and white animal crackers. With the sprinkles on them. Okay. So so we go to this worship service, and they're using folk instruments and singing worship to our triune God in the Bengali language and in a traditional Bengali style. Very cool, not just not only to experience, but to also understand how incredibly significant that was for the Christian church to be able to do that and to have the freedom and the joy in worshiping in that way. The other funny thing about that worship service is because they're out in the open and in Bangladesh, it's not considered rude to stare, which is very disconcerting when you don't realize that and you're white and you're in a village like this and most people have never seen a white person before. They just stare at you. And they, without blinking, we'll really stare at you. But then you realize they don't think it's rude to stare, so you can just stare back at them, and they don't feel threatened by you taking pictures of them. So you can take these. Gore- I'm looking right now, actually. I should post this on Instagram. I'm looking right now at a was that six foot tall, five foot tall picture that Jr. has of a of a man from Bangladesh, and just they're such gorgeous people. And he was part of an Islamic sect. They. They have no problem staring at you and studying you, and also they have no problem having you stare back at them and take pictures of them. So, very photogenic country, very photogenic people. And also, okay, here's another fun... Oh, man, there's so many things I have to say right now. The men in Bangladesh wear skirts. They wear these wraps, and they hike them up, kind of like you'd imagine Samson hiking him up, hiking his, like whatever you, know, you see the picture of him pushing the things over and he's wearing kind of a thong sort of skirt they they hike their skirts up to do work but they just wear them as wraps and the i just was on a call with teenage girls today with Kane of Vox about what gender 
and how do we express the sex that God made us. Gender is a traditional definition of gender is the expression of our sexuality in a culturally appropriate way. And so a, a Bangladeshi man expresses his gender by wearing a skirt like a Scottish man of old would. Uh, Brad Pitt, did you know Brad Pitt wore a skirt to an awards ceremony recently? Or a screening of something. What kind of skirt was it? A skirt skirt. What do you do that for? Uh, because our cu- our culture is super screwed up. And because that for him was a statement where for a Bangladeshi I mean, man cool to... skirts for like cool kilt type things for dudes to wear. Right. Because if you're expressing your masculinity in a Scottish way or in a Bangladeshi way, you can do that. Right. Or overseas. Like I have a visual, um, I have a visual of the, of the young, long haired, g- sort of gypsy American, you know, expat living in some foreign country. He's got the man bun and a t-shirt and he's wearing like... And dreads, long, yeah. Yeah, he's wearing like a long Bangladeshi type skirt. Right. All over, like Singapore, I mean, go anywhere, you'll you'll find those people. The island sort of lifestyle. Right. Totally so normal. So anyway, Bangladeshi men wear skirts. They also, their typical way of sitting, if they're just hanging out with other dudes and chilling on the street side whatever is they squat like you picture over a squatty potty and apparently their veins you know if, if a grown man like jr were to squat or even a, m- many grown women but men in particular were to squat uh it would cut your blood circulation off but their veins in their hips develop in such a way and their flexibility in such a way that it they actually have very good circulation going into their legs because of sitting in that posture as a form of relaxation so anyway Going back to the potty story, we're at this village. We've walked several hundred yards, and the church service ends, and the translator who was with us says to me, we're driving into an even more remote village next. This is the last chance you, and I'm the only woman in our group. There's a couple of other white men, and then there's two Bangladeshi hosts, translators, and the one guy says this is the last chance that you will have to use a real bathroom until we're back in the city tonight and it's lunchtime and so i'm like okay i guess i'll go and i'm wearing this huge digital camera slr with a lens big lens added on around my neck and i've got i don't know like another something else around my neck with a water bottle or something and i'm wearing a scarf around a long scarf around my shoulders and a long skirt and I'd bought it's kind of like a sari a Bangladesh long-sleeved dress anyway lots of things dangling and I go into this bathroom and I have to use the squatty which is literally just a hole in the floor and I was so proud of myself for not peeing all over the camera and the things that were dangling while I'm holding because I didn't want to set stuff on the floor it was pretty gross and so I I kind of am patting myself on the back metaphorically as I emerge from the bathroom and remember this is a culture that's not shy about interest in other people and staring and all of the men have already taken off towards the van and I come out of the bathroom and there's probably 75 to 100 women waiting for me to come out of the bathroom. And then they just enveloped me and marched me to the van. I didn't know a single one of these women. And I, in my heart, it felt like a little bit of a victory parade for having successfully used the squatty potty. <laughs> and um, it, obviously it wasn't, but it, it was a, I was a little bit self-conscious about the fact that all of these women were just waiting for me outside of the bathroom. And all of the men had just moved on. <laughs> and I mean, they, the really cool thing was... It, I don't think a single one of those women was one of the Christians that we had just worshipped with, which was maybe, it was less than a dozen women. Right. And I there was such kindness and such interest and openness. It wasn't a threatening sense of, at all, of, oh, I've just been abandoned in a Muslim village <laughs> and I'm surrounded by a hundred people that I don't know who are shuttling me in a direction. No, they, they think were, you're awesome. They, like I don't know that they thought I was a celebrity. They were very interested in me and they were just very kind and hospitable. And I love, I love being disarmed 
in the sense that I think a typical Christian American, at least when we were there in the early 2000s, would have thought of a Muslim village as being hostile Mm -hmm. to somebody who was a known American and a known Christian. And yet there was zero sense of me feeling threatened by them and a hundred percent sense of me feeling welcomed and taken care of by them. Um, ah, uh, yeah, I had something I was going to say that and then I totally got derailed. Hmm. Um, we should probably move so, on oh, talking about. So the other thing I noticed about there's a couple other design considerations with, uh, overseas bathrooms in Malaysia, for instance, all of the bathrooms are tile rooms. They're mm-hmm. small tile rooms, a little bit larger than, you know, maybe the size of a walk-in closet. Um, and inside that room, you have on one end of the tile room a shower head. And on the other end of the tile room, you have a sink and a toilet. Everything is in one tiled room. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, that's clever because then when it goes to cleaning, yeah, cleaning is super simple. You just you hose it all down. Just hose it all down and spray it Because off. there's attached to the toilet is also the hose because for the bidet because well it's not even necessarily a bidet. bidet yeah in this in the poorer places toilet paper is an expensive luxury and so westerners even in malaysia westerners will use toilet paper and probably not Only, be able to put it in the toilet i know i i got into the habit because but there's a hose with a nozzle on it yeah. like you would think of in a garden hose to and wash. you spray yourself off you guys, it's just it's, it's feels so much better to spray yourself off and clean yourself that way than, so, use, than use the toilet paper to just dry pat, pat dry so a a lot of asians think that westerners are pretty unsanitary and gross because we don't oh, wash yeah after it. and there's a there's a Muslim cleanliness there's something to thing be going on. I feel much. But also, we put, we put, the hose in the tile bathroom where you can literally just spray everything yeah. down to clean it. We put a bidet in and it's lovely. It just you just come out feeling better. Okay, so um, enough of that. Back to Brad Pitt for a second <laughs> and culturally appropriate things. So the reason I, I bring it up is because I wanted to look up and see what he wore. Mm-hmm. Um. And two thoughts come to mind. The first one is, well, I discovered that he's he's off and on worn skirts and stuff randomly hmm. in the past, too. But there's there's nothing feminine about that. Except except that there is. But Okay, here's the deal. Put here's him in the, Asia, he'd be totally normal. Put him parts in parts of Asia. But he's not in Asia. He's not. Which means that he's making a statement and he's trying to blur lines. That in the United States or is he just are being, being weird. No, I don't find I, any. The, that's a. He's got a very because your brain has been corrupted manly. by the world. <laughs> because I've traveled, and I, I've seen no, different things. No, no, experienced different things. Because because, and I, I say that jokingly and harshly, but I actually genuinely believe that we, as Bible believing Christians, who want to raise mentally healthy kids need to recognize that we need to draw lines for our kids and not say you can't wear a skirt but why would you in america want to wear a skirt see that's everything about your clothing is a form of communication and you know this because you love to switch up your glasses your hairstyle is a form of communication Mm -hmm. your new shoes are a form you chose you chose Jair's wearing new shoes, you guys, that he posted about on our Telegram. They're this they're zero whatever shoes, you know, so kind zero of supposed lips. to have a barefoot sort just of flat feel. Just a flat shoe. But you didn't just choose any flat shoe. You chose a particular brand of flat shoe because that communicates to the world something about who you believe you are and your values. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Brad Pitt chose that skirt knowing his American audience because he wants to communicate to the world something about who he is, what he believes, and what is important to him. Okay, but there's no prohibition in scripture against men wearing, like, I mean, in Bangladesh, they all wear long robes and shirts and clothes. Right, there's no, no, but, but I think the scriptural basis would be understanding that God made women and men different and complementary and that 
that different and complementary is culturally expressed in different ways. And so when we read, where is it, where Paul talks about women and their long hair mm-hmm. or women and wearing head coverings to worship, which we probably have people out there who wear head coverings to worship women. So they would interpret that as differently culturally couched than others of us would. But um, but the point is, we have to understand every point of how we experience life through the our own cultural lens and with an understanding that there are certain and I'll get actually I can get to this in a second uh I may never get to what I wanted to talk about today because it's a judo night and we have to go at a certain time but uh I'm trying to find a way to say this differently than what I said before. The eternal, universal truths about how God made men and women and how we separately and in complementarity to each other reflect the image of God. There are very hard to express, honestly, deep universal truths about what it means to be a man who is made in the image of God, but a distinct male, and what it means to be a woman who is made in the image of God, but distinctly female. And I think we get a lot of those clues from from our bodies. And I know I've talked about this probably till some people are sick of hearing me say it, but if you guys don't know us personally, JR's 6'3", used to be 6'4". I'm 5... I used to be 5'4". I'm probably 5'3 now. <laughs> and we we bear out very strong stereotypes for American culture about what, it, what a man does and what a woman does simply by our stature. So I can't do the heavy lifting when we're working at our cabin, when we're working in our yard when we're you know i i do the garden jr does the heavy lifting stuff jr fixes the lawnmower jr lifts the lawnmower on you know drives it onto the trailer and hooks the trailer up to the truck to take it to the repair shop where it is right now because we live in a fallen world no but oh lovely um but you know when we when we take the kids skiing i make sure they're fed and taken care of because my very body was designed for nurturing you know, in the phone call that I was on this morning, the gal pointed out, she's like, look, there can be working working mothers and working men, but who keeps the baby close to them during the baby's first year of life? The mom does, because the mom is the one whose very body continues to nurture the baby even after it's born. So it doesn't make sense for a woman who is physically weakened by creating a baby in her body, and then, I mean... There are women who bounce back after childbirth like crazy, but there are also cultures that believe that a woman shouldn't lift a finger for a month after she has a baby because her body has been so depleted by the act of growing the baby and then having the baby, and then it actually requires more of your body calorie-wise to feed a newborn than it does to grow a baby in your womb. And so all of these things, a woman is very vulnerable and very weak in the childbearing years, and the man then... We, we can just n- learn from our bodies, from the created world, that men are stronger, men are bigger, men are faster. I mean, I, I'd spare no opportunity to point out to our kids. Like, we watched a race a couple of weeks ago. The men were far and away fat. It was a much more interesting race to watch the men <laughs> run a mile in the Big Sky State Games than to watch the women. It's more impressive because they're physically stronger. Women can't keep up. The fastest woman couldn't keep up with the slowest man on that field. And so we learn from that something about your design, and then we express that design in a cultural way. And in America, the cultural way of expressing our design has not been skirt-wearing. And so you can play devil's advocate all day long, but if your son showed up down here wearing a skirt right now, I guarantee you, you would flip out. I would flip out? You would freak out? out? Maybe you wouldn't flip out. You should say, what are you 
what are you trying to communicate? What are you trying to accomplish? Well, because in what wearing I'm, a skirt, what I'm, what I'm trying to where's where again, Molly and I have had this thing. I can be very black and white and not see gray very well sometimes. Um, I feel like I'm being the black and white one and you're being the gray one where, right now. Maybe, but I'm just trying to say, where's the line between, okay, this, because you're not going to, you can't, I think it's wrong to apply. In we went through this, you know, there's been conversations about this in missions where the Western way of doing church is the right way. Mm-hmm. The Western way of doing this is the right way. And I don't know that that's correct. Just because today historically, you know, in America, we don't have tribal people or a segment of culture or whatever running around in, you know, in skirts or wraps or whatever you want to call them. Um, doesn't mean that that's like categorically or globally wrong. You're saying it's simply wrong in this culture right here and right now. Because, because I think that it's trying to make a statement then the statement reflects a value system that is trying to buck the design. Which is, I was made a man, and what what the skirt-wearing, you know, whatever, I mean, I, I, I was, there's this non-believer who's a huge fitness guy that I follow on Instagram, and he was railing against effeminate men right now. I actually enjoy the aesthetic of men who love style. Uh, and it I don't have to have the, the mountain man in order to think that they're dressed in an appropriately manly way. But for me, a lot of it's the heart motive behind it. And also, what do we believe what do we believe that a man is put on this earth for in relation to other human beings? I'll give you two examples from our very recent family life. We were driving to violin lessons last Thursday and just up the street from us, we live we live in a neighborhood that is surrounded on several sides by farmland. We're driving up the street and right before we get to an intersection, there's a delivery truck pulled over and there's a fire, a very small fire, but there's flames coming out of the grass, which is getting drier and drier because we're in 100 degree Montana weather. There are flames coming up, and this guy is literally has pulled a case of water bottles out of the back of his delivery truck, and he's pouring individual individual sized water bottles onto this little fire. And the girls who are made of questions want to know how did the fire start. I don't know. I didn't watch it. I get, I almost guarantee you that this guy who has stopped trying to put it out didn't start the fire because it probably started either by someone flipping a cigarette out the window or by a car with a chain dragging on the concrete or on the pavement made a spark and it started a fire on the side of the road and they're miles down the road by now they have no idea that they started a fire but here's where the where the manliness and I pointed this out to all of my kids came in this guy stepped up and used the resources at his disposal and his strength to protect other people and to protect property and to solve a problem that he didn't necessarily create. And as we're slowing down to drive up, this guy in a really rundown red minivan who is going the other direction stops his minivan on the side of the road, running across the road, rips the shirt off his back, the t-shirt off of his back, and in true Laura Ingalls Wilder style, you know, Lily was, she's been reading the Laura Ingalls Wilder books and she is like, they did this and on the blanks of Plum Creek, there was a prairie fire and they wet burlap bags and they beat the fire out with the burlap bags. This guy whipped the shirt off his back and started beating at the fire with his t-shirt. And the other guy who's trying to put the fire out with water bottles realizes this is a better plan takes his t-shirt off, and by the time we've gone 50 yards down the street, these two guys are beating this little fire out on the side of the road with their t-shirts. And I said, girls, this is this is a beautiful expression of manliness. These men are using their strength to solve a problem that they didn't create and to protect other people. Well, what happens if a woman does the same thing? She gets out and... There's no pro- I have no problem with a woman doing that, but but here's the deal. I was a woman driving by with a car full of kids. There were men who were already on it. There was zero I could do except text you that there's a fire and maybe you could do something about it. I I honestly, I have no problem with women doing that. But 
look at war movies. Men rush headlong into danger because God designed you with an impulse mm-hmm. to protect at great cost to yourself and potentially the cost of your life. The other example that pops to mind of this is the dude in Indiana, Elijah, who has a lot of vowels or consonants in a row in his name. In Indiana, this mall shooting, his name is E-L-I-S-J-S-H-A. But you know what? He just stopped a mass shooting, so I'm not going to make fun of his name. He, I don't know, if you guys don't know the story, you can look it up. But what I think is incredibly cool is there's a 22-year-old dude whose grandpa taught him to shoot a gun. He's at the mall with his girlfriend, and 15 seconds elapsed between when this guy, who had a, a small arsenal of weapons stockpiled in the bathroom of this mall, walked into a food court, killed three people, hit two other people, 15 seconds, according to mall cameras, elapsed between when this guy started shooting and 22-year-old Elisha tells his girlfriend to get down, pulls his handgun out, starts shooting at the guy, hits him, it was 40 to 50 yards, Hits the guy, fires in a matter of seconds, 10 rounds, hits the guy with eight of them, and according to the police press conference that I watched, he charged toward this guy while yelling at the people in the food court to go to get it undercover and to run away. Beautiful example of his instinct you know, that we, that I'm, I'm trying to make the case that we through physical design can see, I bet you a million dollars, Elisha's a bigger guy than his girlfriend. And so by that design, we can understand who, who has, has the moral obligation to protect and to use their strength to protect. And that's built into our nature as well as into our physique. And I guess what I'm, my thing with the skirts is, okay, wear a skirt if you want to wear a skirt, but your skirt is trying to communicate something and it's trying to communicate, I believe in our American culture right now that you are trying to get away from so-called toxic masculinity, which we need more good masculinity, not less. But that's still a presumption. You won't really know unless you ask him. That's true, but I can't ask Brad Pitt that. But Brad Pitt is setting the example for millions of young American men who will find it culturally acceptable to... Uh, I I feel like sometimes there's there's fights to pick, and maybe it's a slippery slope. Maybe it starts with Brad Pitt wearing a skirt, and the next thing you know, you know, we're wearing makeup and calling ourselves women, which we already are. You don't need Brad Pitt to wear a skirt to do that. But... I you know I don't, maybe it seems like it's inconsequential and it, because it's cultural related and cultures shift and change and are so different no matter where you go that you know I like I've worn a skirt overseas they're a lot more comfortable than wearing pants <laughs> but you're not wearing a skirt right now no I'm not wearing because I don't want people to look at me weird it has everything to do with their perception of me. Because you understand that 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 wearing a skirt here would communicate something yeah, that at the most that at the most would be confusing at the best would be confusing. I to would people. get beat up in certain circles. Yeah, and then we address, <laughs> and then and then you know, I mean, that's the same thing with the transgender thing. Like we have to let somebody transition transition because they're getting bullied. No, we don't. We say that bullying is unacceptable no matter what you think of another person. You know, if you were to get beat up, that would be wrong on their part. It's not because you're doing something inherently wrong, but you're also communicating something that's confusing to other people. Just like if you were to go to Bangladesh and speak English, people wouldn't understand you. Incidentally, to go full circle on the show, um, wearing a skirt overseas when you're using pretty much all squatties, way more convenient than... You know, wearing a Western pair of pants that you have to take off. Agree. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. So there we've gone. We've gone full circle. Did we talk about anything you want to talk about today? Uh, no. Are we out of time? We're at forty-five. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm gonna. I guess I'll. I have two things, but it's not what I was gonna <laughs> talk about. Um, the first one is, I made peanut butter cornflake blobs that are kind of like a Rice Krispie Treat or a Scotcheroo 
but just marshmallows, butter, peanut butter, and cornflakes. And I was looking for no bake things that would be. I used organic, multi grain, ancient grain. They weren't actually cornflakes, flake cereal. And trying to look for something that would be have a modicum of nutrition to that was no bake because I'm resistant to turning on the oven unless absolutely necessary when it's 100 degrees outside. And the other no bake thing that I made was no bake cheesecake cups, which was literally basically cream cheese frosting <laughs> with strawberry slices. Uh, squeezed into a cup over graham cracker crumbs but it was a delight if you're looking for no bake things those are both great options for snacks for your kids or a fun summer dessert sort of thing do you feel like we've gone you know i don't know i just i'm thinking about the classification you give it no bake no bake like this is you know this is a thing just today for lunch I really didn't eat much today except I found some steak bites and I didn't bother microwaving them. I just ate the steak bites right out of the fridge. And then you kind of keep going, well, I didn't heat them up this time. Well, do I have to cook them next time? Well, do I have to do this? And so you wonder if like you've just gone too far down the road and all of a sudden. I feel like you're just going down into relativism then. Like not heating up steak bites is very different than not cooking your meat, (laughs) which is fine. If you want to eat your meat raw, that's fine. Maybe. With me. Maybe. I'm also really bad at communicating what's running around in my head half the time. But so anyway, I will have JR share the links to the cornflake thing and the no bake cheesecake cups. And now I'm going to now I'm going to pull it now for something completely different. Um, I have continued having several conversations with people offline about the thriving versus surviving um, where you're at in life. And I I feel like there's there people feel um like they're failing if they would say that they're surviving and not thriving and i wanted to offer a corrective that i think that that's a feature and not a bug of being a finite creature because god made us to be dependent on him and if we feel like we're thriving there's a very short amount of time that we can feel like we're thriving before we start feeling like Tower of Babel, we don't need God because we're doing just fine without him. Thank you very much. And so this struggle that well, I won't project on anybody else, but I feel like for us, we're in a season where there's always something breaking down or we make really good plans. So, for example, we've been talking about buying a Subaru a lot you guys I know you guys have heard us talking about this plan to sell our bigger vehicle that's been the, my daily driver and get something that's got better gas mileage way better gas mileage <laughs> and times better gas mileage. literally by a factor of three <laughs> and we we had a friend take this Sequoia to auction and it sold for the, the price right inside the range of prices that we were hoping to get for it and then the buyer took possession of it and gets back to well, our friend. Well, there was like a detailed. The oh, okay. Hadn't taken possession of it yet. There was a detailed overview of they it. They like to do. They do a pre, They do a cursory overview, and then if they see something that comes up, they do a detailed one. And they saw something come up, and they're like, Whoa. like major stuff. And like so the four wheel drive won't come up. So the deal fell through, and we're now on the hook to get this arranged. And it's just it, it's having car stuff break down is. It's always discouraging to me because I feel like it's just always so expensive and it's so constant. So for me, that I constantly battle when there's something wrong with vehicles, just a deep state of discouragement. And this felt like an extra big blow because we hadn't even driven the Sequoia for several weeks after getting it detailed before we were able to get it to auction. And so it's just been sitting in absolute pristine condition, cleaner than when we got it, literally. Yeah. In the garage. I wouldn't even let the children get in it to see how clean it was. And and to have it sitting there, just this this anticipation building for when we sell it and we can move on and we're trying to be good stewards and plan well and 
it just feels like God took the wind out of our sails where it's like, nope, you made these good plans, but I, you know, as, as the proverb says, the king, I can't remember what the proverb is. Anyway, there's proverbs all over the place about the best laid plans. And then God says, nope, I'm God. And I'm going to derail that because I care less about your, you're trying to be a good steward and your well-laid plans. And I care more about your heart and what I'm doing in your heart and keeping you dependent on me. And, um, that's really easy and great to say in theory. (laughs) It's a lot harder to live out when it comes to, you know, not just the car thing, but relationships and raising children and living in church life with fallen human beings. Well, the the car thing, the car thing is a first world thing, but I think the, the universal experience of, I'm doing okay, therefore I forget that I need God, rather than, as the Lord's Prayer teaches, give us our daily bread. You know, God didn't let the Israelites store up manna in the desert because they, he knew how idolatrous they had a tendency to be. Two days extra worth of manna and boom, we don't need God anymore. (laughs) And so it's deeply embedded in the human heart that we we so quickly turn away from God when we think we've got this, that God consistently keeps us in a position of vulnerability and of being suffering through reminders of brokenness in our home and our sprinkler systems and our relationships. Anyway, um, I, I want to close by reading Every Moment Holy, Volume 2, which is the one that's more dedicated to suffering. Uh, he, at the very end, has... A liturgy for when the long sadness is settled in. And he says, Are you near to the brokenhearted, O God? Then be near to me, for I am wearied, worn down, heart crushed, given to tears, acquainted with grief. I feel now so isolated, like one awash in the dark belly of a great sorrow. I'm slowly waking from my disbelief, pain, and frustration to find that the life that was once mine is finally and utterly past. I'm slowly growing familiar with the splintered edges of my own shattering. And in this season, my grieving seems a solitary, unshareable thing. I find myself daydreaming of the one I miss. I dream of them at night as well. And so my laying down to sleep is like the tensioned exhale after a hard weeping, and my waking in the morning like a sudden sob. Would you meet me, O Christ, in this wounded place that no one else can see or reach? Seek me out in this great loneliness as a shepherd pursuing a struggling sheep. For in these days... I am drawn far from human community. My thoughts fold inward upon themselves. My heart wanders bewildered amidst a garden maze of vivid recollections. Is it here, through this haunt of memories, that I so often drift, hoping to grasp again some sense of the one I've lost, recalling all the ways we loved each other well, and also ways we failed to love each other well, the good things said or left unsaid, the hopes, the friendship, the regrets, and all such things are poured and set more fixed than words engraved on stone. O Christ, who suffered for me, follow and find me now amidst the tall shadows of bittersweet remembrances. Take me by the hand. Lead me up along a better way through these branching paths. Let me discover in the grip of this constant ache, or even because of it, the dawning of a more precious communion with you. I do not ask that you take all of my sadness away, for I know this ache is the measure of love's reach And my bearing of it is both a stewarding of love's wounds and an affirmation of love's worth. I would not wish to be relieved of such holy burdens, nor would I wish to cast an idol of my pain or to make a long encampment in these ruins. I know my road goes on from here, and there is hope eternal. I pray you would soften this deep sadness, would inhabit it and labor to transform these wounds from within, reshaping my heart remaking my desires, my passions, and my compassions. So let this accumulated sadness be permanently inscribed in my heart, not as an inventory of irreparable loss, but rather as a promissory note recording the full measure of all that will one day be restored. There was screaming upstairs while you read that. Yep. There always is. No, well, I was thinking the screaming is uh, analogous to my soul when you read that. 
I just like that. That yeah. there's not an inventory the long... of irreparable loss, but a promissory note according to the full measure that will one day be restored. I like the poeticness of when the long sadness settles in. Mm-hmm. It's definitely the season of life I'm in right now. I mean, work is absolutely fantastic. This music project is fantastic, but overall, in the season-wise, those are the, you know, there's little high points, but in a general undertone of the long sadness. But maybe that's, unfortunately, I wonder, because I can be a little bit of a downer sometimes, a melancholic person, um, if that's more the state of the world than the other one. Like, we don't really live, because it's fallen, we live in a constant state of brokenness, and we have these little glimpses of... Uh, the goodness and things in there, but, and then maybe it's just a state of our own hearts we have to figure out. Yeah. I did actually not quite finish it. The prayer. He says, now lead and comfort me, O Christ, until my long grief is seen at last for what it is, a small and passing thing that will one day crumble and give way to unimagined glory. Lead me and comfort me, O Christ, through all my days until your kingdom is finally and fully realized. Your victory over death is demonstrated complete. All of your good promises are perfectly fulfilled, and sorrow and sighing have fled forever. So I think there's a... I wanted to finish that because you were saying, you know, setting one type of prayer against or longing against the other, when in fact we need little tastes of heaven in relationships and in good food and in sunsets. And other, as Rich Mullen says, there's such a thing as glory, and there are tastes of it everywhere, that we need those tastes of glory to give us the perseverance to get through the long sadness because it's only when we get to the other side of glory that we realize how small the long sadness was in light of eternity. But God, by his grace, gives us these little tastes of glory to propel us to get there because because it's not... I'm, I'm going to stop talking. Uh, no, I just was going to say uh, there's a whole other side of what I actually was hoping to talk about today, which is that we are we are not motivated by the you should do this. Just get through the suffering because God is, you know, God, like that's what God has for you. You get through the suffering because God is good and because God gives you tastes of goodness that are just foretastes of utter goodness to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it. Oh, you guys. I feel like it went from ridiculous to heavy in a hurry. I feel like I want to go listen to Rich Mullins now. I want to go listen to Rich minutes. Mullins now. Um, if you want to get a hold of us or uh, would like to interact with anything we mentioned on the show, you can do so. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we've got a Telegram group. And I'll include the link to that private group in the show notes. You can also jump on our website, www.toobusytoflushallgrammaticallycorrect.com, and scroll down and there's a send, up, send us a postcard option. And if you'd like to send us an email, if that's your jam, you can do so at tb, the number 2f, tb2f, at pmpapamike.me. And finally, if you want to share us with your friends or family, that is the biggest compliment anybody could ever give us. This whole show is self-funded. We self-funded. We do it from our basement. We have no need right now for uh, financial support, but we really appreciate listener support and passing the passing the word on. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. If if you like it, if you don't like us, then don't say anything, but just don't tell us. I don't want you to hurt my feelings. <laughs> I want to add something about don't hurt his feelings by when he shows up in a skirt either, but he's not going to. Because <laughs> that would be culturally inappropriate. Now, you guys should go listen to Rich Mullen, Such a Thing as Glory. I'll have JR include a link in the show notes. All right, cool. Wow, I just yawned. Why am I tired? This is I the best album cover, night. too. Look at him in his white pants and a white drape with a yellow lab in front of him. That's... Wow, that's an old one. Yeah. There is such a thing as glory. 
Wow. Don't know that I've ever heard of it. I was you know? a big oh. Rich, Rich Mullins fan. Oh, I can't play um, it. I can't play it right now because there's an wow. ad on it. But no, so, it starts out with speaking a. Of, speaking of contemporary Christian music, that may be something we should consider talking about at some point. One of our. I don't have great opinions about contemporary Christian music. I do. What do you? What kind of music do you listen to? I listen to Andrew Peterson, Ellie Holcomb, and Alison Krauss. I'm really boring. <laughs> and every now and then I hear something new and I'm like, oh, I like that. And then I forget who plays it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. Um, we can save those conversations for offline. Okay. Um, yeah. So anyway, we'll see you guys hopefully next week. <laughs>